you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And while you're doing that, let me just recommend a couple of books to you. Um, Actually, two books, and both of them from the same author. You know, one of the things that we're going to be studying in the course of our series on Acts is the subject of pneumatology. Now, don't be intimidated by that word. Pneuma means uh, spirit in Greek, and so pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And I'm aware that there are folks here that like doing additional study, and so I want to get good resources to you. And one of the ones that I wanted to recommend was a, a book by Gordon Fee. He's written a very competent work called God, the Spirit, and the People of God. And it, it, it would be a great companion study to some of the things that we're talking about here. Additionally, if you're looking for a, a deeper, more technical study into the work of the, of the Holy Spirit, Gordon Fee also did a book called, called God's Empowering Presence. So the first book is kind of an abridged version of this God's Empowering Presence, where he looks at all of the passages that Paul has written on the Holy Spirit and kind of unpacks them. So they're both good reads. I recommend them to you if you're interested in additional study. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Title of this morning's message is The Spirit-Filled Life. And I'm going to pick up in verse 40, even though we read this last week, but I didn't really have an opportunity to treat these last couple of verses in this section. So I'm going to read verse 40 through the end of the chapter. Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he, that's talking about Peter, by the way, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, to us this morning, and speak to us in a way that we might not simply know about you, but we would know you, or that we wouldn't simply gather and assemble more information on the Holy Spirit, but that we would encounter the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't simply hear about the love of God, but that we would enjoy the love of God. And we pray that you would do all of that in the context of of this service where we're together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with a question. 
It's a question that has preoccupied some Christians for many, many years, and the question is this. What is the genuine evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, in Pentecostal circles back in the day, the prevailing opinion to that, or an answer to that question was exclusively tongues. And using Acts 2 as a guide, it was common to pray for Christians to receive the Holy Spirit. And a Pentecostal would know that somebody received the Holy Spirit because it was evidenced by them speaking in tongues. The Charismatics might say that uh, tongues are optional, but he certainly has to evidence the spiritual gifts and certainly has to evidence the power to live the Christian life. In the 18th and 19th century, with the Wesleyan revivals and the emergence of the holiness movement, some believe that the evidence of the Holy Spirit came forth through entire sanctification, which was just another way to say that they believed that that believer, because of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, they were freed of the effects of original sin, freed from the effects of total depravity. Some Reformed believers would say that you just you get it all at conversion, and because you get it all at conversion, the obvious and evident change comes in the life of the believer. And all of these responses kind of reflect a genuine and sincere wrestling with God over that question of what is the genuine evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning I want to come at that question in a different way. This morning I want to examine that question from the full vista of Acts chapter 2. I want to bring the whole chapter to bear on that important inquiry. You know, I remember one time being at a resort and standing at the foot of a mountain overlooking a valley. And it was really a, a, a stunning view that I was, I was looking at. It was a limited view, but a stunning view. And then I remember hiking up the mountain path where the horizon opened with a majesty and a grandeur that was exquisite. And the the view that was remarkable at the bottom of the mountain was only really a sliver because as I walked up further along the path, the true scope of the landscape, the true evidence of the glory came into view as we hiked further and further up the mountain. And I want to make an analogy between that and between what we're encountering as we move deeper into Acts chapter 2 and we arrive at the end of Acts chapter 2, because this passage now delivers us to the top of the mountain. This passage delivers us to the path's end of Acts chapter 2. And it is here that we turn around and we gaze upon the full vista of the Spirit's effect upon the lives of the believers. It's here that we determine that we will allow the full chapter to define our understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. See, see, everybody wants to slice up the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's works in Acts chapter 2 so that it can fit their denominational shape. So Charismatics and Pentecostals really resonate with verses 1 through 13 of Acts chapter 2 believing that tongues and manifestations are the the obvious evidence, that that, that's the primary evidence, and their vision for what the Holy Spirit can do can drop after verse 13. Fundamentalists identify more with verses 14 through 36, where you see 
the word of God preached, Christ proclaimed, repentance being called for. Of course, the Baptists would rally around verse 38, where there's this call to baptize the believers who had just repented. But all of these are just a, they're just a slice of the vista. In order to see the whole scope, we've got to step back and take in all of the beauty and all of the wisdom. We've got to look at the whole landscape of Acts chapter 2. Because everything that has been written down thus far delivers us to the doorway of something wonderful, something magnificent, something significant, something transformational. And what I'm talking about is the launch of the local church. It's it's almost as if God says at the very end of Acts chapter 2, tongues are not the end of the work of the Spirit. Good preaching doesn't capture all that I'm doing. Repentance even is not the finale. But I now give you, I now entrust to you the place, the location where I'm going to pull it all together. I give you the place where my people will dwell. They'll dwell with my spirit. My spirit will dwell within them. And I will give you the final evidence of what it truly means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I give you the local church. See, part of what's going to happen over the next 35 or 40 minutes through this message is that your definition of what happens when the Spirit of God fills us is going to expand. Your definition is going to be pushed out to the entirety of Acts chapter 2. Because these last verses in Acts chapter 2 represent the final evidence, the concluding effects of the Spirit being poured out. But I want to suggest to you that they're the least discussed when the question of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is actually ever put on the table. So let's look now with that in view at this section, and let's examine the question of what does the Spirit-filled life really look like at the end of Acts chapter 2. And I'm going I'm to talk to you about a sequence of two really simple steps that come at the end of Acts chapter 2. The Spirit-filled life is seen in, number one, being added, And number two, being devoted. Number one, being added. Number two, being devoted. So let's look at being added first. Jumping back into the text. Peter's been filled with the Spirit. He's preached the gospel. He's been a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we talked about all of that last week. But then this climactic call rings forth from his lips in verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation, from which comes the response in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, here's my question. To what were they added? I mean, they've been, they've repented of their sins, they've been converted, they've been baptized, they're going to heaven. The greatest need that they had on earth, the greatest need that they have in eternity has been resolved. What else is there? See, Jesus didn't die simply to send us to heaven. Jesus didn't, didn't die to simply give us an experience of eternal bliss. Because if that was the case, baptism would look much different. It would be plunging the new convert into water and then holding them under until they woke up in glory. (laughs) 
We are saved to first inhabit this world, which is why verse 41 says, those that, be- that received his word were baptized and they were added that day to something. And there were 3,000 souls that were added, by the way. Notice that being added comes after being baptized. They received the word, they were baptized, and they were added to something. Curiously, the same expression shows up in verse 47, where the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So these people were being saved, and then they were added something, added to something. It's almost as if God is saying, I want to bring you out of a crooked world, but I want to add you to a place where my spirit-filled people abide with one another. I want to connect you to a new community that is marked by worship. It's marked by the study of God's word. It's marked by a mission mentality where they're taking the gospel out to others. I want to set you in a community where my spirit dwells. I want to add you to the local church. You see, the evidence of the Spirit's coming was not merely being Spirit-filled. It was not merely being Spirit-gifted. It was being Spirit-added in Acts chapter 2. So here's what happens. I mean, the Spirit comes. He comes to convert. And then as we studied already in Acts chapter 2, He connects us to the church universal. And that's part of what the beginning part of Acts chapter 2 typifies. It's the Old Testament prophecies that God would have a people that are becoming fulfilled through the Spirit of God coming, the people being united, the Spirit of God comes, Babel is reversed. That's why the languages were being, were being declared, magnifying God in people's own languages. But what happens as Acts chapter 2 continues is that the universal church begins to group into local expressions. It's not enough to just be part of the universal church. The church begins to group into local expressions that people are then added to. So Peter stands up calling for an exchange. He says, come out from a crooked generation, but be added to something else. It's not just about coming out and ending up nowhere. It's not just about coming out and living between two worlds. See, God doesn't call us from a corrupt generation so that we can meander aimlessly around the Christian landscape. You know, a meeting here and a conference there and an occasional Bible study here and there on the side just to spice things up. You know, where we're basically living a life where we come out of one world, but we don't get added to another world. We come out, but we're displaced. We come out, but we're, we're transient. We live as, as Christian exiles, having come out of the world, but never having been added to anything else. We're between two homes. Come out, but never added in. You ever heard of the name Mehran Nasiri? Tom Hanks made a movie about the life of Mehran Nasiri. It's about a guy who lived in an airport terminal. The original story is he lived in an airport terminal for, get this, 18 years. And it's a true story. He fled Iraq, he fled Iran as a refugee, and somehow en route he lost his papers And so he flew through France to England. He arrived at England, didn't have his papers, and so England sent him back to France. He wasn't allowed into the country of France, but he was allowed into the airport at France. 
And so he was legally able to stay at the airport, but he was unable to leave the airport. In other words, he fled from this crooked world, but he was never able to find a home. He lived for 18 years exiled. He lived between two worlds. He existed in a state of limbo. Here's what I want you to hear. God says, I love you too much to allow that to be your experience. So the spirit comes and the spirit calls us out of the world. God says, come out of this crooked generation, come out from this corrupt generation, but be added to what I have created that we might not live in limbo, that we might not live as Christian exiles. So God calls us out to add us in. And I guess one question, if we want to apply this is, have we been added in? Is there some place that we've been added in as a believer? Are we living as Christian exiled, exiles between two homes, having come out, but never been added in? I love the way Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 41 goes. He says, quote, That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They were signed up. Signing up is a great way to describe adding in. The Spirit saves us, then the Spirit signs us up. The Spirit plants us in a community. He takes us out of a corrupted generation and adds us into a community. He plants us in a kind of ark that carries us through the world until we reach our heavenly home. And the ark, of course, is the local church. And as one man suggested, it is a place where the stench inside would be unbearable if not for the storm and the flood outside. Now, if you've ever wondered, where does this whole idea of membership in the local church come from in Scripture? I want to suggest to you that it begins as an evidence of being filled in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. That we are called out to be joined together. That we are called out to be signed up. That we are called out to be added in. And by the way, look at the immediacy of verse 41. It says they were added that day. That day added. One message 3,000 people added. I mean, imagine what the next Engage class for, for, our, for our guests, our Engage classes, our new members class. Imagine what the next Engage class would look like if it was 3,000 people added. Would Paul be banging his head off the wall over that? Added that day, 3,000 people. Listen, let me, let, me, let me just say something here. If you're someone who doesn't like any change at church, you may not want to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Because he comes and he disrupts things. They go from 120 to 3,120. You know, do you like your fellowship group? Forget about it. Because next week there's 200 people stuffed into the living room. You go around, you mention your names, you're done because that's the whole evening. You like, your, you like parking in the parking lot out there? Forget about it. The parking lot's packed. We park people up at Red Elephant, bust you down from now on. You like being surrounded on Sunday mornings by people you know. Forget about it. Because now there are people here that are new, that are heartbroken, that are broken and limping and messy. 
because they've come out of a crooked generation and God is adding them into something that they need, the ark that's going to carry them, the ark that's going to help them. They were displaced. They were between two worlds. Yet the Savior, who himself suffered a kind of exile upon the cross, who bore the sins of his people, who experienced the Father turning his face away because the sins of his people were placed upon him. He knew the agony of separation. He understood what it meant to be a man with no home. Because of him, he rose on the third day, ascended to the Father, sent the Spirit to add us to him and to add us to one another. And he calls to us. And even this morning, he calls to us. And he says, come out from a corrupted generation, and be added in to my people where my spirit dwells. See, Acts 2 is actually pretty simple. He says, you want to know what spirit-filled looks like? Don't just come out, but get added in. And by the way, our heart is for every Christian in this room to be added to some local church. I, I hope it's here. But if it's not here, let us help you get to another good gospel-preaching local church so that all people might experience the fellowship of God's people, the care of being under a pastor, the enjoyment that comes from worshiping together. And the doorway for involvement in this church is the Engage class that I mentioned earlier, and there's another one of those coming up sometime in November. I think it's November 23rd. So the Spirit-filled life begins with being added. Second point, the spirit-filled life is being devoted, being devoted. In other words, it doesn't end with the experience of addition because God takes them from verse 41 to verse 42, from addition to devotion. Look at verse 42, and they were devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So they went from being connected to the church to being committed to the church. It's as if God says, coming out is good, but that's just the start. Getting connected in is good, but that's not all that I have for you. I want you to be devoted. I want more than simple affiliation for you in my kingdom. I want devotion for you and devotion from you. I don't want you to just be added to the roles. I want you to be added to the life of the community of God. And this distinction between addition and devotion is actually the line of demarcation for many believers today and perhaps even for some of us here this morning. What I'm suggesting is that we can have all of Acts 2, but if we stop at addition, we're not manifesting the full evidence of the being filled with the Spirit. Because God has more for us than a loose association with other believers or just being integrated into the universal body of Christ. He wants us to be added to his people and experience devotion towards him through their involvement with each other. So maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, Dave, wait a minute. You have my attention. What what, what does this devotion really look like? Well, I've got three three sub-points under being devoted, three sub-points that I want to look at from the text. Devoted to liturgy devoted to community, and devoted to generosity. Now let's look first at devoted to liturgy. Liturgy. 
Now, depending upon your background, that word liturgy means either a thing of beauty or a four-letter word. Because for some people, liturgy just spells dead orthodoxy. There's no life. There's, it means very little. But, but for some people, it represents the beautiful way that the gathering of God's people is organized so that the gospel is celebrated among them. And that's the way that I believe we can use it here, and that's how, what we can draw from Acts chapter 2 as well. Because in Acts chapter 2, we get a glimpse into the first liturgy of the new local church there in Jerusalem. And it includes being, verse 42, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. So they're gathered together for teaching. They were gathered together for breaking bread, which, which here means both the Lord's Supper, but it also is something that is done in homes, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But pay attention, pay attention to the word that precedes all of that. They were devoted to these things. In other words, the Spirit came, and the Spirit created a hunger to hear the Word of God preached. The Spirit came, and the Spirit created a hunger to share the Lord's Supper. The Spirit came, and the Spirit created a hunger to pray and pray together. Now, here's a great question I think we have to ask, you, ask ourselves is, does my life display the kind of Spirit-filled devotion to what they cherished as they received the Spirit of God. Because as we think over what we have here in Four Oaks, there's certainly no lack of opportunity to enjoy these things. I mean, this work, this week alone, in our local church, we're going to have Bible studies. We'll have a Sunday meeting next week. We've got a marriage conference coming out. And how we prioritize the liturgies and being involved with the liturgies that take place in those various meetings says much about whether we are truly growing and whether we are truly devoted. And if you want to know how they, they committed themselves in Acts chapter 2, this is, this is what it looked like. It says, and day to day, verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Day by day. That's quite a commitment. Day by day by day. That's quite a devotion. You, you know, the, the, the greatest danger for the American Christian is, is to think that by hearing more, we're growing more. By hearing more, I'm growing more. By, by simply putting myself in a position where I can listen, somehow that means I'm growing. In fact, our, our generation is, becomes crooked and corrupted through excessive information. We value information without application. Because hearing without applying creates comfort. Hearing without applying, actually one way to look at it is hearing without applying creates inoculation. Hearing without application creates inoculation. What I mean by inoculation is that we get inoculated by hearing truth but because we're not applying it, we believe we are what we hear rather than we are what we do. And that's a dangerous believer. Because that believer will grow more ambivalent about 
gathering, more ambivalent about enjoying the gospel truth that comes through liturgy. I brought a quote with me by John Calvin. He once said, the decline of the church is more due to laziness than wickedness. And I think the question that that delivers us to is, are we devoted to the assembling of God's people? Or is attendance optional? You know, we, we look at our social calendar and we, 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 we have to throw priorities over a number of different things. But when I see God's people filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it appears like there is a priority on meeting together and being devoted to liturgy. Okay, so we're talking about being devoted. First sub-point is devoted to liturgy. Second sub-point is devoted to community. Look at verse 42. They were devoted to fellowship. Verse 44. They, all, who were believe, all who believed were together. Verse 46. Breaking bread in the homes. And so there was a, there was a way of life that they shared together, where being together was an expression of their devotion, where there was something they began to understand as a result of the Spirit coming upon them that united them together and that they realized they could accomplish together what none of them could accomplish apart from each other. And so they began to gather. So they began began to share their lives. Now, I know that you have been well taught on, on fellowship, on this idea of sharing life together. So I want to focus on one specific aspect of what it means to be a spirit-filled community, which is expressed in Acts chapter 2, and that is meeting in homes. I'm thinking of verse 46, where they were breaking bread in homes. Because what we see is And they were meeting, not only in the temple, but from house to house. What we see is that when the Spirit comes, the soul opens. And when the soul opens, the home often opens with it. And that was a way of life for the believers in the New Testament. There was an application to truth where they realized that that to be a community, to be a church meant that we're inviting people into our lives, which meant into our homes, into our weaknesses, not only our strengths. And so there's this cry that goes forth in the New Testament to enjoy, and this word is often used, hospitality. Hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, so right there, just in that sampling, we have this, this command to, to seek to show hospitality to one another, pursue it, do it, and then don't even neglect to do it to strangers, people that are from the outside of the community, use that to invite them in, and then it almost anticipates that we're going to complain about it. So so the Scripture says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's really interesting that in the New Testament, the home is not viewed as something that the believer withdraws into, but the home is this base for care, this base for community, this base for mission, 
And hospitality was the means of accomplishing that. So the question I have for all of us this morning is, how do you think about your home? Is your home a bunker that you retreat into? Or is your home a a stewardship that God has given you that you might glorify God by serving your spouse, serving your family, and serving the people of God, and even using it to reach out to others? I think this may be one of the best ways to identify the drift towards laziness that Calvin flagged earlier. How do I view my home? When was the last time we had somebody over for dinner? When was the last time we had somebody over for dinner to enjoy fellowship? Or or maybe to, to build a bridge with an unbeliever that we're trying to reach out to. To build a bridge that ultimately might be able to sustain the weight of the gospel going over it. I want to suggest to you that this may be one of the most effective ways to reach out to your one life. You've been looking, you've been praying, you've been wondering, how can I do this? Think about it with respect to your one life. So devotion is the theme. Devoted to liturgy is the first subpoint. Devoted to community is the second one. And the final one is devoted to generosity. Now, in case you're wondering whether I'm, I'm bending this passage to address our financial needs, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to look at it together and, and you be the judge on whether I'm doing that. But I, I should add that, that with expository preaching, you will be astounded at how often a passage comes into alignment with the life of the church and the life of the believer. It's part of the glory of God in expository and through expository preaching. So let's just look at verse 44. They, quote, had all things in common, which doesn't, mean, doesn't eliminate this idea of possession or of having possessions. It just means that possessions didn't rule them. My stuff was not my God. It was not something that, that, that was worshipped by them. I had, a, I had a fresh illustration of this this past week. I was at a conference, needed to have a, a meeting at dinner with, with several people. All the, all the restaurants at the conference center were packed full at every meal. And so I was expressing the problem to a guy that I knew just, just a little bit. And uh, as soon as he heard that I had this problem, he immediately said, oh, why don't you take my car? You can use it for the afternoon, and you can just get the keys back to me any time. And I was just provoked that somebody that I didn't know well kind of immediately saw a need or what they perceived to be a need and wanted to meet it with their possessions, wanted to, 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 you, to throw their stuff at my problem. It's a, great, it's a great illustration of verse 44. They had all things in common. Look, look at verse 45. And selling their possessions, they distributed as any had need. Well, just in case you have any concern here, this is not some subtle form of communism. Because we, we find out later on in the same section that they still own homes. They, they still have possessions. It's talking about excess and things that aren't being used. But there was this, this spirit-filled devotion where their giving went beyond their money to their stuff. Their giving went beyond their money to their assets. There was a sense where if I don't need it, I'll sell it and give it. 
And in fact, one of the ways that I can give to the poor or others or whatever need takes place is I can sell what I don't use and give it. And that was part of what began to take place as the Spirit of God came upon the people of God. And I have to tell you, this is so provoking to me. I I can't tell you the last time I sold something in order to give something. And I read passages like this, and I'm so provoked by it. Look at verse 46. They had glad and generous hearts. Again, they're devoted to generosity. Here we see they had generous hearts. So the picture that's emerging here is that the Spirit of God creates a people that are more devoted to one another than they are their own consumption, than they are their own stuff. You know, Martin Luther had a quote once where he said, every Christian must go through two conversions, a conversion of the heart and a conversion of the purse. And the irony is that that second conversion becomes even more difficult for those that experience prosperity. And by the way, in case you're wondering, that's probably most, if not all of us in this room, when it comes to the global standard of what prosperity is. If you have a house and you have a car or two, you're like in the top five percentile in the entire world of wealth. One man who was studying just prosperity and Christians from nation to nation said, quote, 95% of believers who experience the test of persecution pass it. 95% of believers who face the test of persecution or adversity pass it. Then he went on to say, 95% of believers who face the test of prosperity fail it. And that's where Jesus, you know, he reaches out to us. He loves us so much that he's always reaching out to us. And that's part of the reason why he talks so much about money. That's why Jesus stepped in to save the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. You remember them? They were saying, I've prospered. I, don't, I need nothing. That's a literal quote from the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. But Jesus says, listen, let me, let me read your mail for you. You are lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And he says that because he's reaching out to them and and he wants to warn them that their prosperity is going to stumble them. So I, I, I feel like I'd be less than a pastor if I didn't raise the question, how are we doing in the test of prosperity? Are, are we giving to our family, meaning the people that God has placed in our immediate family that may have needs, that, that, that might, are, are we seeing the opportunities in how God has sovereignly placed us with those people? Are we giving to the poor, those that are less fortunate, those that are less resourced? Are we giving to God through giving to the local church? Or is prosperity making us lukewarm? Are we, are we failing the test of prosperity? See, Acts chapter 2 reveals that when the Spirit of God comes, people do. They experience two conversions, a conversion of the heart and a conversion of the purse. That when the Spirit comes, people change. When the Spirit comes, people give. And it's an exciting and an exhilarating thing to behold.
if you have detected a passion this morning in what I'm saying, I want to I say that it has nothing to do with this last point on gen- generosity. It is simply because I, I believe deeply in the local church. And by the way, it's not because that my experience in the local church has always been splendid. I dare say I could darken your mood this morning with some of the things that I've encountered in the local church. And equally important to that is that I know that my own leadership has been flawed and imperfect at times. I'm at same conference this past week. Somebody I hadn't seen for a while comes up, says, hey, can I talk to you? Love to talk to you. I sit down with him, and he begins to share about some ways that he felt like he had not been treated appropriately by me. And as I listened to him carefully, I thought, yeah, I think I did wrong you. And I was able to acknowledge that. And I was able to be honest about that and to apologize for that. Because we're all flawed. We're all a mess. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. We're going to discover as we push ahead in Acts that the Spirit's arrival did not eliminate complexity. It did not eliminate difficulty. It did not eliminate sins. In fact, if sinlessness was an evidence of being filled with the Spirit, I'm afraid we're all hopelessly empty because we're all flawed. Great quote by Elton Trueblood. He said, quote, The church is essential to the Christian, essential to the Christian, not because it brings him personal advancement or even inspiration, but because with all of its failures, and there are many, with all of its failures, it is an indispensable instrument for the redemption of the world. See, the importance of Acts chapter 2 is that when the Spirit comes upon sinful people, the Spirit doesn't back off. When the Spirit comes upon sinful people, the Spirit works within them. The Spirit works to organize them, and through them, impact comes to the world. And there's, there's just this sense, as we continue to read and study Acts chapter 2, that when the Spirit comes, we gather. When the Spirit comes, we devote. When the Spirit comes, we change. When the Spirit comes, we send. When the Spirit comes, we go for the glory of God. And it's through this chapter, Acts chapter 2, that we are being forced to ask a question that I'm not sure we're prepared to ask. Do we really want the Spirit-filled life? Do we really want this life? Do we want to change? Do we want to grow? Do we want to multiply? Do we want to see verse 47 with all of its attending problems take place? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. But you know what I know? I know this about you. You do want this. In fact, that's why you're here this morning. That's why God is working upon you in the way that he is, because you're leaning into God and you desire God. And if that's you, if that describes you this morning, this is where it starts. God says, come out from a crooked generation, be added to the local church, and be devoted to the people of God. Why? Because it's a true evidence that we've been filled by the Spirit of God.